Yo, this is Julius, aka Juice, and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Well, it was very quiet early that morning. If we might imagine in our minds, it's very dark outside. It's about three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. It sounds a lot like it might inside here right now, just very quiet, very still. Maybe the only sound that we might be able to hear out there in front of the tomb is the occasional shuffling of the guard's feet. Maybe every now and then we could hear chatter, laughter maybe even out of Roman soldiers. And yet we know that where the apostles are as all of this is happening, they are hiding away. They are laying very low right now and it's very quiet there too, especially there. Quietest place in the entire town is wherever the apostles are at this nondescript spot. They're very sad and confused because, I mean, we saw Jesus walk on water. We saw Jesus turn it into wine. We saw him raise children from the dead. And yet somehow he, well, he's dead. He's been dead for, I mean, the whole weekend. And usually when people die, they remain dead. The only one who could raise him from the dead was Jesus, but he's dead now. And so now, now what? Are we going to go back to our old jobs and to our old lives? I mean, Jesus did so many incredible things. I mean, he was that close to getting this kingdom off the ground in this world. But I guess God came up short this time. Or maybe he wasn't as great as he had said that he was because after all, he's dead right now. Well, little do the apostles know, but at this exact moment in time, I imagine, as they have all of these thoughts that they are confronted with, maybe even not wanting to, to say it out loud, but they, they have it in their hearts. God the Father has already said to God the Son, and now go and arise from the grave. As Jerry just read, all of these things look like it's true. It looks like Jesus has just lost. It looks like God is not in control. Acts Chapter 13, verse 30, but God raised Jesus from the dead. Later that night, we see the, those, those very same apostles. They are, are, are locked away inside this room because they are, are very afraid. And they're thinking, well, if our rabbi just got crucified on a cross, they're going to come after us next. We were his understudies, and so they're going to come looking for us. And so they're very... Are, or um, are, are laying very low still. When all of a sudden, in John's gospel, it says, John chapter 20, that, that all of a sudden, in the blinking of an eye, Jesus is now suddenly there in their midst. And I just can't imagine what that was like, seeing him crucified the way that he was. Now he's right there in front of you again, and he's asking you, reach out and lay your, your hands in my side. See the nail scars in my hands. And, and I just, 
I mean, how could you not stand there weeping out of joy and of complete amazement at what is going on here? What in the world is happening here? And as he appears in their midst, Jesus says, really the most important thing for his followers, he says, peace be with you. Set all of these anxieties and fears at rest because I have just triumphed over even death itself. And now more than 2,000 years later, as a result of this, we we look back on, on our lives and there's not a person here who can't do this where we look back at all of the hellish, unspeakable things that we have done to other people in our lives. We think about all of the horrific things that we have done to our Creator. And, but now, as a result of that cross and the empty tomb, now we call on this God for mercy, and we receive mercy. We receive the grace of the living God. And now, as we read all throughout those pages of the New Testament, now we being once far away from God have now been brought so near to His side. We've been reconciled to our, our Creator and to our Father. You know, Jesus appeared in their midst after His crucifixion and resurrection. And yet, do we also not know that that Jesus, right now at this very moment in time, Jesus Christ himself is in our midst, in this room, right now at this very moment. It is by far the most quoted verse that I hear in Scripture where, where Jesus says on another occasion, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am dwelling there in the midst of those people. I mean, we quote this verse all the time, but do we know that the context of what this verse really means, what Jesus has in mind as he says these words is actually conflict resolution. Is if a brother sins against you, go to him in secret and in private and speak about what he's done. And he's going to have all kinds of responses sometimes. Um, at times he's going to listen, at other times he's not going to listen, but the point is, if somebody has sinned against you, if somebody has hurt you, go to that person yourself and speak to them. Because if you will do that, Jesus says that where two or three are gathered together in my name in order to resolve a dispute, in order to, to um, draw two people far away and make them one once again. I want you to know that I'm dwelling in the midst of those people. Well, we like this verse, I think, because it's when others sin against us. And if we're honest, it puts us in a nice position to where, okay, this person is down here and I'm up here and they've got to lick my boots for, for a little bit, you know? <laughs> and there is another verse, though, that we're not exactly as fond of or, or acknowledge as much as Matthew 18.20. And that is our text here this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, starting at verse 21. This is one of those verses where Jesus is explaining to us what we need to do only when it is we ourselves who have harmed another person. When there is a person who has a just claim that we have wounded them in some way, shape, or form. And then Jesus, he explains what our responsibility is in that moment. 
As we remember last week in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he speaks about scribes and Pharisees, how, how their righteousness, it was nothing but this external dog and pony show pretty much. And he says, if you want to enter into my kingdom, be as much unlike the scribes and the Pharisees as you possibly can. And so continuing with that thought this morning, Jesus now begins speaking about very specific, commonplace components of the law of Moses. And he begins really exposing those very dark crevices of our hearts where, if we're honest with ourselves, aren't always very a beautiful thing to see. And in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 21 in our text, here's what Jesus says. He says that, that you've heard that the ancients have been told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. Then he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme courts. And whoever says to him, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Not exactly the kind of rah-rah Easter passage that, that we're accustomed to, right? And yet, powerful, powerful, transformative words here at play in the text. He, he begins by saying that, that you've heard that it's been said, and then he, he cites the law of Moses about murder. He's saying that, that everybody in this city knows that we are not to commit murder, obviously. It is number six on the list of commandments in the law of Moses. You shall not murder. And I think to this day, we look at murder exclusively as the act of taking a human life with a heart of malice. Or other times we might look at murder exclusively like this as a crime scene. We hear that word murder and what conjures up in our minds is, is Cain rising up against his brother Abel in the fields out of jealousy and he kills his own brother with his bare hands. Or, or we might also remember trials that where murder had taken place, Jamine Ramsey, O.J. Simpson trial, whatever it was where we had grisly pictures of a murder that had just transpired. I was told a, a moment before our assembly that there had been 200 brothers and sisters in Christ in Sri Lanka, went to an Easter service just like this, not knowing that their lives were about to be extinguished through gunfire. And we just look at murder, especially nowadays, as this very random, heartless thing where just at any moment in time, there could be violence unfolding where we are or, or close to where we are in the world. And this is how we view murder as this random, senseless evil in the world. And as Jesus says here, it's very easy for, for even we ourselves to, to read that command, you shall not commit murder. And we think, oh man, I'm feeling good about myself. I've never stabbed anybody to death. I've never walked into my work and, and gunned down a supervisor with, with um, a machine gun while cartoonishly laughing. I mean, I wanted to do that many times, but I didn't actually do that. 
So I'm keeping God's commands. Look at me, everybody. I am keeping the sixth commandment. I have never killed anybody in my life. And yet Jesus does something powerful that, that I fear is lost in translation to, to you and to me. As he then says, but I tell you, dot, dot, dot. What Jesus is doing here is completely unheard of in the first century because if you would be a teacher, a rabbi, in any way, shape, or form, you could only teach the exact same way as 9,009 other rabbis did before you. You could only say, this is what the law says, and just leave it at that pretty much. And yet what now Jesus is doing here is really he is saying that no longer is it religious convention that is speaking up here. But now from now on, this is me speaking. This is God speaking. This is the kingdom of heaven talking and speaking to you about just exactly what these things that, that you think that you've mastered mean, but, but actually it's so much closer than you could ever dream or imagine. What Jesus says is that you may have never stabbed anybody with a knife. And yet, I'm, I'm letting you know that whoever is angry with his brother is guilty before the courts. Well, as we hear that word angry, I think that this also is lost in translation because in our language, angry just means that you're angry. And as we know in scripture, it is not necessarily a sin for, for us to be angry. We remember one occasion in the gospel of Mark, it is on a Sabbath day and Jesus heals a man who had a, I, I might believe he had a withered hand. And the Pharisees, of course, say, you're not supposed to be doing that. It's on the Sabbath. And what we read is that Jesus looked at these Pharisees and he had anger burning in his eyes at them. That was not a sin. Sometimes it is good for us to become righteously indignant at something. Or as we might recall in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Be angry, get angry if you, you need to, but do not sin in that anger. And this is really the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Be angry, but do not sin in that anger. And what this word angry means in the original language is that literally it is a word which is defined as a boiling rage. And so there right off the bat, we see this is not just some minor annoyance or you might be a little bit upset at somebody, but this is the kind of anger that, that we all experience at least once in our lives to where we are saying stuff, but we don't even realize what we're saying. Our eyes are about that big. And, and if we see Whoever has made us that angry, we might just grab them and just strangle them, you know? <laughs> boiling, boiling rage is what this word means. And so what Jesus is saying is that this is when we hold a brother or a sister in contempt. And so what Jesus really is saying in living color is that whoever is enraged with his sister, whoever is enraged with her brother, this is really, truly an act of violence and a murder. Because if you allow that resentment to remain inside you, gurgling inside of you, and you take that anger into the very next day, into the very next week, into the very next year, whatever it might be, 
you have just broken commandment number six. Or, if I could put it very bluntly, you are a killer. You just took that person out in the eyes of the living God. Well, he mentions contempt, but he also then speaks about dehumanizing speech. And he uses a word here. It's probably in at least half of the translations inside this auditorium. It is the word raka. Now, the interesting thing about the word raka is, is that this was an Aramaic word in use at the time. And it's believed that where this word originates from is that when they tried to come up with, with, with um, a, um, um, a name for, for a very um, unpleasant person who you do not like, where this word came from, it's believed, is that it's the noise that a person makes when they gather spit in their mouth. And they're just about to spit on something or on somebody. This is a verbal way of saying, I am spitting in your face. It's saying, this is how I look at you as a human being. What this word means, as far as the translation goes, it means stupid. It means empty. And it means absolutely worthless. So now maybe we can see why Jesus says, do not call anybody stupid, worthless, or empty. I could translate this word further, but we would have to bleep it out on the podcast. You, you catch my drift, but... Dehumanizing language, Jesus says, no place for it. And he also says, you fool. And... I mean, I'm an 80s kid. I grew up in the 80s, 90s, and I used to watch the um, A-Team and Mr. T. We all remember Mr. T, and he had a catchphrase, I pity the fool. And so I hear that word fool, and it's kind of harmless to me, but what this meant in the first century, though, was, was much worse than that. And there are shades of, of meaning of this word fool because there were a lot of times in Scripture where it is not referring to you as a person, but it's referring to an individual as being religiously foolish or morally foolish. We remember one instance where we see Jesus speaking to scribes and Pharisees and he pronounces his woes and he calls them blind fools on one occasion. So has Jesus just contradicted himself? Has Jesus, or has Jesus just put, put himself in danger of the fires of hell because he said fool? Rather, what he's doing there is really exactly what we see a psalmist doing, where it's written long before then that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What Jesus means is that you are, are, um, are rabbis and you're teachers, but you're acting as if there is no God. You are religiously foolish is what he is really saying there. What Jesus is rejecting to with this word and, and really with this phrase, you fool, is that the moment that we say this about a brother or sister in Christ, or I would add anybody, whether they are Christian or not, we have just pronounced a judgment upon that individual. We are making a judgment that you are stupid, that you are worthless, that you are empty. We are making a very judgmental, a pronouncement upon a person who God has already has pronounced as being precious in his sight and bearing the imprints of the divine. And the reason why 
we should watch our anger is because as I alluded to a moment ago in Ephesians 4, Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. But then notice what he says. So simple, but, but so much a struggle of ours, it seems like sometimes. Where he says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, what Jesus is speaking about here is us letting the sun go down on our wrath in, in regard to a brother or a sister. Because when we do that, he goes on and he says that we're giving Satan an opportunity. And Satan does his very greatest work in our lives when he's got us angry. When he's got us resentful. When, when we want to isolate other people who are in the church. That is his greatest hits. And then Paul goes on and he says, Eventually, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be completely put away from you all, along with all malice. And so we read this, and I mean, right from the jump, Jesus says that we're pretty much all killers. And I mean, a huge part of us wants to jump up and say, come on, Jesus. I mean, you're just exaggerating. You are embellishing, making a very strong metaphor just to drive what your point is home, right? But Jesus is dead serious. Jesus says, this is murder. This is another way to break commandment number six. And that is murder. And if we look at this very closely, the reason why Jesus says this is because it's not so much that physical act of murder Jesus is really, emphasize, really emphasizing here, but what he is really looking at is at the spirit of what murder is. Here's why Jesus has made this statement a necessary thing. That is at the root of, of all callous, cold-blooded, calculated murder is what began as simply anger. And then that anger morphed into rage. And then that rage became fury. And then that fury became, I've got to destroy this individual's reputation, perhaps. And then when we're there, whether we, we have a knife or a gun or we're just using our own tongues, it really doesn't matter. Because so often this leads to crucified relationships with other people. It leads to the assassination of a person's self-esteem in many times. Where we remember James as he says that, that with our mouths we praise God as our Lord. And yet as people, there's just something about us sometimes where with that same mouth that sings, Lord, I love you, Lord, you are so good, we sometimes curse our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been made in the image of God. He says, this should not be. And yet the most haunting of words regarding this come from in the book of Genesis where Cain has just killed his brother and then God's voice comes to, to um, Cain out in the fields and he says, he says, the blood of your brother is calling out to me from the field. Oh, it just gives me chills. You see, anger is, is something that we need to control because I find it so interesting if, how we look at the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, he lists 15 things. 
And notice how out of those 15 works of the flesh, which are at, at, um, at odd and at, um, at, at war with, with God's Holy Spirit within us, eight of those 15 things are rooted in our anger. Half of the works of the flesh listed, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, almost every single one of these are because of our anger. And so really what we see is that boiling resentment are bullets. And dehumanizing treatment is a shiv that destroys relationship. Although they may never be arrestable offenses in our own law and order today, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, it's manslaughter. It is a spiritual brand of manslaughter. And I think that's because acceptance is one of our greatest needs as human beings. I have no idea what, what your past looked like, but a person like me, being able to come into a church and the only place in the world where, where I was accepted, where, where I was told, you are special, you are important, Jesus loves you this much. That was the greatest thing in the world to me, and it still is. And I think the reason why Jesus says that our relationships with each other is so important and so sacred is because especially in these days in the first century, as Christians, you will receive enough harsh treatment from, from, from you know, non-believers. The church ought to be the last place in the world where this should be happening. We have a need for acceptance. And I love so much what, what one writer says, Dallas Willard in his book, um, it's called um, A Divine Conspiracy. And he says that to belong is a vital need based on the spiritual nature of a human being. But what contempt does is that it spits on this deep need. It is withering to the human soul. And when it is expressed in its thousands and myriads of forms, it stabs the soul to its core. And it can hurt so badly and destroy so deeply that murder would almost be a merciful alternative to this kind of murder right here. And yet for us Americans, we just read this and we just think, Raka, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm never going to go up to a person and say, Raka? And yet this is actually something that we all, I, I imagine, have struggled with before. When was the last time you said something along the lines of raka, either about another person or to another person? Well, for me, the last time that I remember doing this, it was just under a year ago, and I had watched a clip of a dear friend of mine who had spoken at this church in another place a number of years ago. And then the guy who was a guest speaker one week after him, he began his message that very next week by, by calling out what my friend had said a week ago in a very, I mean, in this way that was extremely in a disrespectful manner, making it appear, intimating that what my friend had said was the stupidest thing that has been ever heard. And I mean, I got so mad about that. And in that moment, I did what, what most of us do in these spots. We do the opposite of what Jesus had said. Rather than lifting up a phone and, and calling that guy and just asking him, I mean, why would you say that? And just having a conversation with him. 
I went to the other guy who was a friend of mine and I called him an And I didn't even realize that I had said it until I looked back at the text message and I thought, oh man, why did I say that? In fact, my friend even wrote back and he said, that happens to be one of the very nicest and, and most strongest men of God who I know. And, oh. You know, I used to look down on the Apostle Peter for... How, I mean, how could you sit in front of that fire and deny Jesus not once, but, but not twice, but actually three times? But I think all of us are going to have those, those moments there in front of the fire where we just let, I mean, just blurt stuff out like this. Then we too weep bitterly after we have realized what just happened because in that spot I realized that it really wasn't that brother in Christ who I had said that about. But I mean, how we treat other people is really how we're treating Jesus for better or for worse. When we go to, to those who need food and clothing and shelter and we go and visit people in prison, Jesus says that it's really me who you were doing all of those beautiful things to Saul, there in the book of Acts, Jesus says, why are you persecuting not my church, but why are you persecuting me for better or for worse? How we treat people who, who all bear God's divine image, who were made in his image, who have his imprints, is ultimately how we're treating God. And I wept when I saw that text from my friend because realization set in that, oh my goodness, I, I just called Jesus an Last week, almost all of us had seen those very sad images out of Paris, France, as the Notre Dame Cathedral was engulfed in flames. And we just look at this 800-year-old masterpiece of Gothic architecture with, with all of the masterpieces of art inside and all of the historical significance that, that occurred in or, or um, outside of that building. But ultimately, that is just a building at the end of the day, isn't it? And yet, you know what is far worse than an 800-year-old masterpiece structure engulfed in flames is? Is that when we whisper about those other people behind their back, when we belittle other people with dehumanizing speech, when we say things to people and just blurt things out that, that might possibly make them question their self-worth, when we say things that, that might break their spirits, we walk up to a holy temple sanctified by God and we douse it with lighter fluid and we light that cathedral up in flames. We bring God's holy temple down to the ground, not one stone left upon another, just as the Babylonians and the Romans had done to, to that holy temple in Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying in so many other words is, is that when we let the sun go down on our rage towards another person, when we're taking communion on Sunday morning, but the only thought in our minds as we eat the bread and drink the cup is how much we, we absolutely hate that sister sitting three rows behind us. We ourselves in our rage and in our wrath are a cathedral that is engulfed in flames. As we worship here together as a church, 
Until we can look around the entire sanctuary and feel a love in our hearts for every single person who we see. Until we are willing to lay our lives down in a New York second for one another. Jesus is saying if you have wrath, if you have fury towards a brother or towards a sister, don't sing that song. That before we sing that song and that before we sign that check, before we eat the bread and drink the cup, question, do I love every single person here with the love of Jesus Christ? This is why Jesus says that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, because when this world sees us loving each other as one voice, as one heart, as one holy temple, this is what is the confirmation to our world that those are the Jesus people right there. Really, here is how seriously Jesus takes all of this. I mean, as he says in the next few verses, he, um, he says in verse 23 that, that therefore if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. He says something revolutionary. When he says, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you that you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last two mites or until you have paid up the last cent, Jesus says. That word reconciliation means to exchange enmity for friendship. It means that like two nations that are at war, you are calling a ceasefire and you, you are saying, I want to sign a peace treaty and call this war off. And yet this is radical stuff here because to this day, we, we look at a Christian worship service on Sunday as the most important thing in our entire lives. And it's very important, isn't it? As we come together, as we bring our sacrifices to our King, it seems like everything else can, can wait and, and can have a backseat. Lunch can wait. Nets and 76ers can, can wait. You know, the lake and our jet skis can always wait because first we must do the far more important thing and sing praises to God's name and eat the bread and drink the cup. And yet what Jesus is saying here, though, is that, that our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters, that is far more sacred, far more important than even when we take communion on the first day of the week. And so he says that if you're about to make a sacrifice at the altar, but then you look out and you see a brother, oh man, I really hurt that guy last week. And I know that I hurt him. Jesus says, listen, do not wait until the end of that worship assembly to make things right. Get up while that minister is speaking. Get up just before communion is passed. Find that brother, find that sister, sit down with them, hold their hand and say, I'm so sorry for what I did. I did this to you. And I know that it's so easy to destroy a relationship and it's so hard to repair one, but, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes so that you and me can walk in harmony again 
as brother and sister, or as brother and brother, or as sister and sister. Jesus says this is the far more sacred thing that you must do. And I know what, what really gets in our way a lot of times is we play the what-if game. Well, what if they're not going to want to speak to me? What if they're just going to blame me for everything in the world as if they did nothing to me too? I mean, what, did, I mean, what does Jesus say here? That until we look around this entire auditorium, and until we feel a love for every single person in this room, not even in this room as well, until we are willing to lay down our lives for every single person of this church in a New York second, our worship is meaningless. Our sacrifices to our God are null and void. And that's because before we sing that song to Jesus, before we sign that check for the church, before we eat the bread and we drink the cup first, Jesus says, if that's the case, sit communion out. Wait until another time to, to sing that song and just go. And that's because Jesus is already waiting for us in that room where, where we will meet with that person. And he has promised that he will be dwelling in our midst if we will just do this. I mean, reconciliation is so, so vital to us. And in that last verse that I read, it's, it's, it takes a lot of time to really understand how, what this means compared to in that own time, um, as far as courts and judges go. But, but here's the gist of what Jesus is saying as we consider time this morning. What Jesus is saying here is that the longer animosity smolders within you, the longer that resentment and enmity boils within you, the worse it's going to get. He's saying, do not carry all of that wrath into the next day, into the courtroom, into a sanctuary. First, first let all of that anger and wrath go. And then come and sing your love songs to me. I mean, now we read this and we think, man, we can crucify each other by isolating one another or by speaking to each other in dehumanizing ways. And yet the risen Savior waits our coming together because He wants to, to see us dwell in perfect harmony once again and for us to resolve our anger. And, you know, the greatest hugs in this world, I don't know if you are, are a hug person, but, but I've always been a hug person. And the greatest hug in this world is when it's a person who we have been at odds with. And strangely enough, it reminds me of, of a scene from Godfather 2.
I think we all have, have been there at one point or another where just get out of my sight. Here's the power of reconciliation. Yet as moving as that is to me, us people really aren't the greatest of examples because if you know anything about the Godfather 2, he messes up again and he has his own brother killed at the very end. And yet the reason why I wanted to show that is because it made me think of the prodigal son where we see the way that God our Father welcomes anybody who leaves him home. Where all that while, even though he's been wasting his hard-earned money and inheritance on all kinds of sinful activities, all that while he's been looking out the window waiting to see his son hit that road, and when he does, he, he runs as fast as his old legs can carry him. And this son of his who, who reeks of, of swine and of pigs, and he covers him in his arms and he hugs his neck. He kisses his head and he... he and he throws a party for him. That is the greatest hug in this world when, when we reconcile with God and now we are now emboldened to reconcile with each other. As we bring this to a close this morning, we, we also read in Proverbs about how we can rise above this. Where he compares our anger to a fire. Once again, it says, for, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. And like charcoal to hot embers and wood to the fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. In other words, if you want the fire to go out, you have to put, put that fire out. You have to remove the logs and the embers. And so I just want to ask us, is there any fires we need to extinguished this morning where we just have all this rage that is silently rising up inside of us Jesus says if we keep this kind of anger in we become a volcano and it's just a matter of time before that volcano is going to explode and result in fractured and crucified relationships and so whatever that anger is as the apostle Paul writes let go of anger let go of wrath and slander. And what relationships of ours need to be resurrected this morning? Maybe we literally need to call somebody today. Or maybe you just need to have a conversation with a person who, who's gone through life feeling about this big. 
and say, listen, you are special. I see God's glory in you. You are so important. And watch their, their, their um, head shoot up. And that sense of pride and self-esteem resurrect within them. We remember how when Jesus rose from the grave, it said, He is not here. What Jesus wants is to look at our, our, our um, hearts and say, that place where there once had been wrath and resentment gurgling inside, it's no longer there. Just because we haven't shot somebody or stabbed somebody doesn't mean that we're honoring God with our actions. Jesus, regardless of what our need is this morning, whether it is for baptism, Jesus says, come, I will be in your midst. Whether it is that, that you are far away from God this morning and you want to reconcile with them this morning, Jesus says, come, I will be in your midst. Or whether we need to reconcile with, with a certain brother or sister this morning, regardless of what our need is. As we stand and as we sing, Jesus says, peace be with you. I am dwelling in your midst.